The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Yes, we uh, we have uh, a good system um, uh, on um, economics that we can calculate the so-called shoot cost of products. Uh, and for example, in the Netherlands, we have more than 50% private brand share. So we know what the prices are for raw materials and energy and packaging and transportation and labor. So if uh, a national brand a manufacturer comes to us and so this this is my price for detergents or my new price for detergents because of the commodity, all kind of all kind of arguments why prices should go up, then we have a very good reference uh, if we can believe that and uh, if we can accept that. Grocers became the face of inflation over the past year. The prices of essentials like bread, pasta and dairy products soared, making a weekly shop unaffordable for some. Government stepped in as fierce debate over who was profiteering from the dire situation unfolded. Both suppliers and supermarkets pointed the finger at one another. On this week's exchange, we gain an insight into one side of the argument. I sat down with Franz Muller, chief executive of Ahol Delhez, a $30 billion supermarket group which owns the Stop It Shop brand in the US. Muller gave his view on whether there are any winners from inflation, when we will start to see price hikes easing, and the opportunity for consolidation in a sector. Listen on to our illuminating conversation. Welcome back to The Exchange, a podcast from Reuters Breaking Views that explores some of the big questions on the minds of business leaders, policymakers and politicians from around the world. I'm your host, Amy Donlan, coming to you from London. Franz, you are very welcome to The Exchange and lovely to talk to you as always. Thanks for inviting me, Amy, and uh, nice to be here. So, Franz, we have talked an awful lot during the pandemic uh, through inflation. It had been a whirlwind for many grocers over the past few years. But one thing I just thought it would be good to to sort of set the scene is that grocers are really at the coalface of the economy. You're seeing how consumers are spending. Are they pulling back what they're spending on? I'm just sort of curious at this point, when inflation has been around now for quite a while, People are talking about cost of living in many European countries. America seems to be easing off on that on that topic. But I just wondered, what is your what's your sense when you see how your customers are behaving? Yeah, uh, very much understand how you're referring to inflation and hyperinflation. Let's not forget that also the retailers had two years of COVID uh, to start with. Mm-hmm. So this is the the third year with rather uh, difficult circumstances and. Um, and when you then talk about uh, food retail, which is our business with 7,500 stores and 400,000 people and 16 million customers a week, then you know that you're a part of society. So very close to your neighborhoods and you go to your one single store. You don't care that we have 7,000 more stores. So what I would like to say with this, we are so ingrained in society, so close to society that uh, we see and feel every day what's happening. Grocery sales, of course, is uh, high frequency, uh, uh, and uh, so we see our customers uh, multiple times per week. So we also see how they are doing. We see how our store staffs are doing, which are a good representation of the neighborhoods too. Uh, and then you see also the challenges. And uh, and COVID was, of course, uh, a health uh, challenge where we took a lot of measures. And yes, we had some uh, tailwind in sales, you could say, because unfortunately, uh, out of home was closed for a moment. Uh, but we also had a lot of cost and measures to take uh, to make sure that we kept safe. And uh, with 60 million customers a week through your doors, yeah, that is, uh, of course, also a health risk. So we took a lot of measures there. So I think and then followed that COVID period, uh, followed by um, in Europe, uh, hyperinflation, 
uh, energy prices going up, commodity prices uh, with big swings, um, and a war in our back garden in the Ukraine. And on the Russian and on the, and the, and on the US side, a, uh, a hyperinflation, a very high inflation tool, quite some polarization in society. Yeah, we see a lot of extra tensions. Tensions for household wallets, how people have to uh, see how they feed their families and come around. Um, and we see also yeah, different type of elements there which uh, make it uh, not so easy for people to, to run a budget. And therefore, I think we as a food retailer have a role to play here. And how does that play out in the actual, the way the customers are behaving? Are they buying more private label goods from you? Are they moving away from brands that are considered more expensive, that have really increased prices? How how are they behaving in that? Yeah, what, what we generally see at the moment, and we see this for a little bit longer time, that we have inflated sales. But mo- in most of our brands, we carry 19 supermarket brands in our company, you see negative volumes. So what, what means is that customers make choices and customers are very smart. They make choices to have one item less in the basket, for example. And the other thing is they are very smart to make other more economical choices. So they go for different type of product, which is not necessarily down trading, how people call it. Uh, they go for, for example, our private label products, which are of excellent quality and value, but they make choices there. And we see that shift happening. We see our private brands growing as a percentage of sales. Uh, and uh, we also worked hard on that ourselves. We, we saw through COVID that uh, more consumption at home, forced by the fact that restaurants were closed, that we offered a lot more convenience solutions, how to prepare your meal, uh, meal uh, components, uh, the recipes, and I think never ever so many parents and kids uh, uh, cooked at home and joined breakfast and all these kind of things. So we carried that from COVID in the present period, where people have very healthy, economical, and, and good solutions also for, for a lower budget. Mm-hmm. So what we do, things like we do, we have higher promotion levels, we have a higher share of our private brands, we uh, run more promotions ourselves based on loyalty cards and these kind of things. We offer uh, recipes for how to cook a meal for two euros per person. So uh, yeah, we have we have to get under the skin of our customers, understand that, and see how we can uh, avoid that we jeopardize um, healthy, affordable and sustainable meals for every wallet. I think that's, our, that's one of our main tasks, is one of our missions as food retail and everybody in our company is working for that. And is that crucial, do you think, to keeping market share or building market share? Is that what you think customers really want to see is the added element now? Just you're not going in just to get your milk or your cereal. You want them to help you figure out how you Absolutely, can better. Yeah. Our customers expect from us that we come up with solutions, how to deal with a uh, constrained budget. Uh, they expect from us that we come up with solutions in the areas I just mentioned, there uh, are multiple faceted solutions. Uh, and of course, we have the big interest to make sure that customers um, are served in our stores and they don't go to a competitor. So if people have a, a lower amount of budget, then price entry products and private label get more ex- important. And we also extended those ranges quite drastically. The Dutch market from 1,500 price entry products to 2,000 in a store is roughly 10% of the total assortment. Uh, but also in the US, we also uh, extending our private brand ranges uh, to uh, to come up to that expectation. 
And uh, we all know um, as soon as a customer changes format, changes store, it's difficult to get people back uh, those switches. So that's uh, for on our minds to avoid that. And that's why we have to make, we have to be sharp in our own proposition to make sure that we can deal with different budgets, different expectations, whilst at the same time, we also think about organic and we think about plant-based and we think about convenience and that, that makes the whole the whole um, exercise quite complex. And of course, let's not forget, we also have increased energy costs and raw material costs and operating costs and labor costs. So that's why also doing our part, we drive a big uh, cost saving program of a 1 billion euros uh, for 2023 uh, to, uh, to, be, uh, to be ready to fund a part of that journey so that it's, uh, it stays affordable for customers. And then if you do the right things together, coming back to a long, long winding answer to your question, uh, if we do the right things together, then, then we see uh, that we gain market share or we maintain market share. And that's for us important. Uh, and we have number one and two positions in most of the markets where we operate. Uh, and uh, market share is for us an important driver. Yeah. And the, the inflation that we're talking about led to a bigger topic about greedflation, right? This this idea that companies, whether it be grocers or suppliers, were somehow profiteering from the fact that inflation was going up and charging as much as they could and actually boosting their profits like more than they were before inflation really kicked off. And I was just curious, what are your what are your thoughts and feelings about that idea of greedflation at this point? Yeah, of course, we we read these kind of things, all kind of different reports, and um, I only can talk uh, for ourselves what we what we are doing. Um, we're here to um, to serve households in these kind of difficult times, and uh, what you will will not have seen from our company that we increased gross margins or these kind of things. We we had a negative margin effect, uh, for example, in Europe where we. Uh, make a little bit more than three cents on the euro at the moment. So it's a low margin business and we and we lost quite some profitability there. But it's growing right in the US, right? So your margins are improving there. Margins are rather stable in the US. We had to, we made there 4.6 cents, uh, dollar cents on the on the dollar uh, in the second quarter. So um, uh, and uh, in total, as a total company in the mix, we make uh, 4.1 cents to be very precise, Amy. So um, that's what that's what we what we see here. There's not a lot of room to play, uh, but greedflation. And in the meantime, people who studied this more, and we had also reports in the Netherlands and reports in Europe. It's not a U.S. discussion at all, by the way. It's a European discussion. Uh, um, uh, people have seen now that uh, it's not the retailer who is benefiting from this or profiteering from this. Um, we are have margins under pressure. We are in a very, very competitive industry, uh, and we do everything what we can to find funding to make sure that we yeah, that we stay uh, affordable as much as we can, knowing that customers are already having a lot of challenges uh, on uh, on higher mortgage rates because of interest, because of uh, hyperinflation, energy prices going up. So it's us. We, we are here to support. We are here to help. Uh, whatever, whatever we can. And if we see now, and we see that's not happening, that a few commodity prices come down, then we also adjust downwards. Where we can, we will adjust downwards. And that's also what we expect from our industry partners too. Yes, because I mean, I suppose this is there is a tension, isn't there, between the grocers and the suppliers, which I think has probably always been there because, as I said, you're at the coalface, but you're also the face of inflation, as in, you know, good or bad you are essentially the end point to the customer. They see the bread on the shelf. It goes up trebles. They say, 
this grocer is charging me three times, not the supplier is charging the grocer three times and then they're passing that on to me. So I'm kind of curious about the discussions that you had with suppliers. How how tense did they get? Yeah. And are they are they improving in terms of the your ability to say no? Because as you say, your private label goods are are you know are very popular now. Is it easier for you to say, well, no, I'm not going to accept that price? And actually, my customers are perfectly happy taking the goods that I'm selling them for my own. Yeah, label. this this is an um, an interesting question, uh, and we could talk a little bit longer about this, but let us let me try to be brief. First of all, uh, it's true eh, that uh, customers are rather complaining about my grocery shopping is getting more expensive. They look at us, uh, not so much at the chocolate manufacturer or the muesli manufacturer or the bread or meat manufacturer. Uh, um, but it's part of our this part of our life. It's part of our DNA that we are customer facing close to the neighborhoods. And I think we also take have to take that responsibility. Um, and that responsibility we take with uh, with both national brands and with uh, with private brands. So um, yes, we uh, we have uh, a good system um, uh, on um, economics that we can calculate the so-called shoot cost of products. Uh, for example, in the Netherlands, we have more than 50% private brand share. So we know what the prices are for raw materials and energy and packaging and transportation and labor. So if uh, a national brand a manufacturer comes to us and so this this is my price for detergents or my new price for detergents because of the commodity, all kind of all kind of arguments why prices should go up, then we have a very good reference uh, if we can believe that and uh, if we can accept that. So th- those those dialogues have been uh, intense and interesting. Tenser uh, than normal, and then is this? Yeah, yeah, more tense than normal, but a much higher uh, frequency of price increases, and therefore also uh, discussions. Uh, but in the end, what I said at the beginning, customers are very smart, uh, and uh, they understand uh, these kind of things. They have to manage their household budgets. So we see a number of categories where private brands really uh, grew a lot. Because uh, people reckon, hey, this is a nice, nice price value. Mm-hmm. And where I think that we would like to avoid uh, shifting, uh, switching behavior of customers to other bi- to other brand formats, to other store formats, I think there's quite some room for national brands to think about why should uh, we give the opportunity to for customers to switch from a national brand to a private brand? Is there not something here in the middle? And the other thing, but it's a little bit more philosophical uh, topic, is you see the pain in household budgets. And I think we have jointly as an industry, the food industry, a task to make sure that we help where we can. And that's why uh, I also ask uh, eh, manufacturers, and we also have internally the discussion, what can we all together do to manage those budgets in a better way? Because the pain is quite high, I would say. And you see also that governments have supported in the past quite a bit, but also that support, for example, in the US, eh, that we had this emergency snap, eh, this, this budget for um for special uh, for special households um that that uh, emergency snaps also gone that funding is out so how to how to deal with this and i expect a, a good support with a long-term view uh, mm-hmm. how we can uh, support those households families and communities because it's interesting I, I thought it was interesting what you said as well about this this greenflation discussion is very much like a european thing and less so in the us and and i think that you're right in that even looked to look at what's happening in France at the moment about you know the the French government actually saying we want a cap on a, a very high amount of products 
Uh, and that's the way we think that we're going to bring down inflation um, and we're going to make sure that the grocers and the suppliers are involved in this. I just wondered what, what are your thoughts on, on an idea like that? Yeah, we, we have seen a number of initiatives in Europe, uh, also in the in the central and eastern part of Europe, a number of initiatives where caps are on, on pricing. Uh, and there's reasonable evidence that that is not really effective and it might even sometimes uh, lead to price increases. So uh, I'm not a fan of this. I'm a fan of uh, of the market uh, itself. And uh, I can assure you that food retail is so competitive, both in Europe and the US, that market will organize itself. and. Uh, like the market cannot live a long time with negative volumes. We see you know, that funding and promotions are coming back. All manufacturers can also, can also not live long with uh, negative volumes. So you see that funding is now coming back. Trade funds are coming back. Supply chains are more normalized. So I hope that we, uh, we, find, that, uh, we find that balance again, uh, and, but rather uh, by the market and not by, uh, by regulation. And I think that it is, it is a really interesting point because I actually saw an analyst note, I think it was JP Morgan, that was talking about deflation and actually the impact it could have on grocers. I'm sort of curious again, if you like if you you're you can see the prices of all the different products that you're selling, where do you think you are in the inflation cycle now in terms of food inflation? How do you how do you see that playing out over the next few months? Yeah, we're still uh, overall in an inflationary environment when you look at the total basket. Um, and but we see inflation coming further down. Uh, when you talk about food inflation, you see that coming it came down faster in the US than it uh, is coming down in Europe, but it's going further down. And uh, it could be that by the end of the year of this year, you might have uh, uh, zero inflation, for example, in the US, uh, um, and you could have a uh, single digit inflation still in Europe. Uh, I'm not a macroeconomist, uh, so um, it's difficult to forecast these kind of things because commodity prices play a role. And uh, just as a sort of um, side, side remark, war in Ukraine, big effects on, for example, sunflower oil, grain and energy as a component. We see also know that climate has a big impact on the droughts. We had today uh, big floods in uh, in southeastern Europe. So we see that harvest of potatoes or harvest of olive oil, too dry, potatoes too wet. Uh, potato harvest in the US is not great because of too dry, different calibration. So there are more components which are also having an effect on commodity prices. Uh, I would appeal to us as an industry, servicing eh, manufacturers and retailers, servicing those households together, that we are as reasonable as possible to make sure that we make those uh, food prices affordable. Okay. I think I'll move away just from inflation uh, for now because uh, it's fascinating, but there is other things going on actually in the supermarket sector from a sort of corporate perspective, which I think is very interesting, which is M&A. Uh, whether it was in the UK over the past couple of years, we've seen private equity really interested in buying up grocers, I couldn't really ever understand mathematically how it's stacked up, um, how you boost margins and all of that, given how competitive things are. But there still is a huge amount of interest. You're seeing it in France now as well, in casino and everything. I'm curious, what do you think about M&A? Because you've talked about it publicly before, how you are interested in buying up uh, grocery chains. The US seems to be a very key market for you. But certainly in Europe, it doesn't look like governments slash regulators are that keen on M&A particularly between grocers. I just wondered what your thoughts are on that. Well, that's, I mean, that's a strong statement, uh, the, the, the latter one. Uh, I would say the following. Eh? If you look at the total markets where we operate, mm -hmm. you see in further consolidation in retail. 
that has to do uh, in, in, in the past had to do mainly with um, more scale for your cost of goods sold, your synergies there. I think now comes an, a second element on top, and the second element of top is on top is that the investments needed now in digital, in technology, in supply chain, and not to forget sustainability, getting so heavy that skill does matter. So um, that will only uh, accelerate uh, consolidation. This is what we also see in a number of markets. And for our company, that means there will be opportunities. And if you have an uh, if you have a well uh, funded company and a good balance sheet, uh, and that is for our company the case, that opens opportunities. But you have to be careful. You have to be careful. Does it support strategy? Uh, and how do you grow your company? Uh, we are an omni-channel uh, food company. We have also a beautiful platform at Bull.com in the Benelux, as you might know. Um, but I think um, those type of M&A activities will be in that space of omni-channel platform, but also capabilities. Uh, and I think we'll, we'll see now already more M&A activities than during COVID. Mm. During COVID, a lot of retailers had some tailwind from the sales number. Uh, and that's a very, very cash flow intense business mm. we are in. So they uh, they enjoyed that uh, that cash flow uh, element, but now uh, it's hard on hard uh, to compete. And the elements, like I mentioned before, technology, digital, supply chain, sustainability, are now more more prominent, and that will also accelerate more consolidation. So uh, opportunities I, to come. I suppose that what to to back up my bold statement is I was thinking about Sainsbury's, Asda, um, Carrefour in France. You know, these kind of these uh, that just basically weren't able to go anywhere because either the competition authorities thought that they were going to remove competition or the government just thought this is going to. Yeah, but out. This is not new. Eh? I mean, uh, every um, Europe has uh, competition laws. Uh, nations within Europe have sometimes also additional competition laws. The US has an FTC looking at these kind of things. So I think uh, it's all meant to protect consumers to have enough uh, choice. Uh, I think it's the right thing to do, and but maybe um, what mainly might change in a few things, in a few things on perspective, how you define the market, mm. how do you define the retail market from business formats and these kind of things, and how do you see offline and online as elements there? So that is those are new phenomena in defining um, competition. We are speaking at the Reuters Impact Conference, which is a huge focus on sustainability. Mm -hmm. And I know that's something that you like to talk about and you're very passionate about. I'm curious, what are your thoughts on the grocery sector and its role in, you know, helping with climate change? And you get, again, I think that there is a, a focus of customers, certainly on packaging and, and all of those types of things. But I'm, yeah, curious if food is a huge part of, of the whole yeah, if you look at them, you, you, you know the numbers very well. If you look at uh, CO2 emissions worldwide, and 30% is caused by the, the total food chain. So as a food retailer, we have responsibility uh, to, to make a contribution here. The total food retail roughly in the total chain is roughly 5% of the total CO2 emissions in that food chain. So it's, an, it's, it's a smaller role, but um, also our company, we took commitments on scope one and two. Eh? Those are the SPTI, eh? those targets on our own operations, but also on scope three, which is a responsibility and a commitment we made to the total uh, supply chain. And those are big commitments, but necessary commitments. We know where climate is going. We can and look around. Uh, I mean, not only what you measure on global warming, but also how the climate is changing with the droughts and the floods and these kind of things, and therefore also a lot of impact on on people. So um, 
that's why I think we as a food retailer or we as a food sector have, uh, have an important role to play here. And of course, if you then go upstream and you go to the farming community and you talk about regenerative agriculture, you talk about farmer livelihoods, you talk about healthy soils, you talk about animal welfare, and you talk about the solutions which are possible, also supported by digital, then there's no time to lose. And that's why collaboration in the total supply chain is so important. That's why it's nice to be here at uh, Reuters Impact, because we hear a lot of uh, stakeholders talking about collaboration, how to come together and what can be done here to accelerate because the, the one half degree uh, warming up of, of, of the planet is, an, uh, is a big concern and also a big concern to us. And also a big concern to us as a company, our associates, our customers, uh, increasingly big concern, but also about a whole generation, uh, the Gen Zs, who are not even 25 years old, who are, con yeah, who are concerned about their future. So a role to play. Uh, we have to be uh, very smart in how we collaborate. Uh, I'm positive on the collaboration. And in the Consumer Goods Forum, that, that, that forum uh, where we bring 400 uh, food manufacturers, uh, consumer goods manufacturers and, and retailers together, uh, it's one of our uh, yeah, spearheads to, to talk about these kind of things. On what can we do here on the Race to Zero, which, as you know, is a United Nations uh, initiative as well to, uh, to bring down the, the CO2 emissions. It's a big priority for the forum uh, next to other things like um, deforestation, plastics, food waste, human rights, because all those kinds of things are interlinked when you talk about climate and biodiversity. Uh, and that's why it's complex. That's why it's good that we bring come together. That's why it's good to, that to, 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 to work with your partners in the chain, work with your NGOs and making sure that you make an, an, uh, a plan together. And we would like to be measured. And we, that's why as a listed company, we have our public targets out. And do you find that investors are still interested in this topic in the way that they were before? Because there was a huge, there was a huge push, wasn't there, like a few years ago, where climate was super important and investors were championing BlackRock and all of these. And you're just seeing less. Oh, I think I, I think in many industries now, there does seem to be much more of a push on profit, as in profit is very important now. And I'm kind of curious whether your investors are, are talking to you less about the climate. No, I would not say that. And we just had a um, every quarter we have those beautiful roadshows uh, that you talk to your investors and explain what you have been doing or to give more context and background. And I think that um, if you look at standards of measurement for the industry, uh, for investors also, the MSCI standard, uh, the Morgan Stanley one or the Dow Jones one or Sustainalytics, I think those those metrics are used more and more often to see if uh, if a share if a company is worthwhile to invest in and why do we do we do i see an increasing interest because um, i think on the long run also investors realize that consumers will make their choices uh, and that if consumers make the right choices uh, for a more, more sustainability company a more sustainable company that in the end also for the company it's uh, it's, it's a better a better economy behind so i don't see less interest uh, i see more interest and um, maybe less pressure yeah, but it depends also a little bit where you are yourself. I think we did a lot of work in the past already. Yeah? Um, if you look at a lot of biodiversity topics on, on, on critical commodities, uh, on human rights, uh, on uh, our own scoring in Dow Jones and MSCI, AAA in the meantime. So we have been fundamental in our company for a long time, for decades uh, already. Um, 
where we believe this is the right way how to do business. Uh, and um, if it's US or Europe, I think that's also helping us uh, making the right decisions. At the same time, of course, in the multi-stakeholder approach, you look also at performance, you look at also shareholder returns, you look at uh, your your, uh, your employer value proposition. That's a beautiful, uh, fashionable word, but uh, what can you do for your associates? How to make sure that, that for them it's a good environment to work in. So you have a multi-stakeholder approach. And I think yeah, also apart from, I think our uh, strong conviction uh, what we have to do in a total sustainability space. I think also investors have been also quite content with our financial performance too. So it could it could go hand in hand, but mm-hmm. you have to make smart choices in the trade-offs. And that's, of course, on every table now. Uh, when you talk about climate, those are big commitments, how to make sure that as a total sector, food manufacturers and retailers together, that you can make that happen. And that's why also this is also for the Consumer Goods Forum and uh, priority. I, I just the the last thing I, I suppose I want to talk to you about is uh, we talked about the pandemic and it was really uh, evident to me covering the grocery sector just how important supermarkets became during the yeah. pandemic the only real source of yeah. people being able to go out food was you know people were worried about toilet paper and all sorts of other shortages yeah. I wondered how do you think the pandemic like what's the legacy on supermarkets in the way that investors now see you guys as in are you more like a utility? Are you more? How do you think that that has changed the perception of, of supermarkets? I think we gained a lot of sympathy because it was tough uh, for frontline folks. I'm very proud about our people in the seven and a half thousand stores to bring that performance and not only in the stores, but also in the distribution centers and the offices. It was a very tough time. Proud about what uh, what our people brought uh, brought for our customers. I think a lot of customers appreciated much more and realized this is a more complex business than they realized before. Uh, and I think also, um, although everybody realizes that you have to eat every day uh, when you can afford it, um, that that function of food retail is very important and more complex in the total organization. I think we learned all a lot about our supply chains, deeper supply chains, which were not all so intuitive and well organized as we hoped for. So uh, I think we learned a lot there. Uh, at the same time, we also see that um, this isn't this was a health pandemic. So I think also the topic of health is getting more and more important. So people are much more focused on uh, ingredients and calories and how to take care of myself. We know that obesity, diabetes are disease number one and two. So I think that whole pandemic brought a more consciousness about health, which is important because for us, it's a very important uh, dimension to see what we can contribute there to make customers, to help customers make healthier choices, to reformulate products, especially our private brands. So uh, that whole pandemic brought, I think, a higher sympathy and respect, if you will, for the the function of uh, food retail but much more focused on health and what can we do about it uh, and how can we as uh, as food retail together with our re- uh, manufacturing partners help here. And the last thing is that um, I think also uh, our investor base uh, understands, wow, this is a very robust sector. This is very important. They see also the strength of private brands at the same time. But they also see that if you're a well-invested company in supply chain and IT and technology and digital, that is also important to uh, to to get back on your feet uh, uh, quite fast. Franz, thank you so much. That was so interesting. Nice for having me. Uh, thank you, Amy.
Thanks for tuning in. This podcast was produced by Oliver Tashlich in London. Subscribe to The Exchange and our sister podcast, The Views Room, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. Catch up with our latest views and much more on BreakingViews.com and on X, where our handle is at BreakingViews. I'm Kim Vanell. Join me every morning for a roundup of what's happening at home and around the world. From the front line in Ukraine. Extraordinary how these people adjust and uh, even laugh when you take cover. To the heart of U.S. politics. When Trump said that he expected to be arrested, it seems like he was trying to get ahead of the story. We bring you everything you need to know in 10 minutes. For your essential daily briefing, follow Reuters World News wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts.